So we already had a guess that possibly having the heat in the in the evening and the semifinals and finals in the morning might not be such a good idea for for finish times in the end. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm feeling a little sluggish. How come? I don't think this is our optimum recording time. <laughs> when is our optimum recording time? If it's not Wednesday at 7 o'clock p.m. I believe it would be Tuesday at 2 a.m. <laughs> Since I'm up in the middle of the night most nights anyway. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But at least we're learning something this week about why you might be up at two in the morning on most nights anyway. I'm ready for Tokyo, apparently. <laughs> right. It could be something to do with your circadian rhythms. And that's what we're talking about this week. So we talked with Renska Locke, a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University, who is investigating the role of 24-hour rhythmicity and light on various processes in the human body, such as temperature, sleep, and alertness. She's the lead author on a new study published in Nature called Gold, Silver, or Bronze, Circadian Variation Strongly Affects Performance in Olympic Athletes. Take a listen. So it's really interesting that you looked at circadian rhythms in uh, Olympic athletes, especially if we're talking about people from the U.S. and Europe and South America having to go over to Asia for an Olympics, how that affects their body. So let's just start with the basics. How, what are circadian rhythms and why are they important? That's a great question. I like to start at the basics. So circadian rhythms are basically rhythms that last for approximately 24 hours. Like literally translated, circa is approximately, and DM is 24 hours. So, so rhythms that are approximately 24 hours. Um, and there are many circadian rhythms within our body. Uh, basically every cell in our body contains a circadian clock and uh, follows a circadian rhythm. Do different areas of your body have different circadian rhythms? So basically, we have one master clock, which is located in the brain, which is called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and that is the, the main synchronizer. So all our, our body parts, body cells have different clocks, but the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain synchronizes all the body clocks together. Why is it important to be in tune with your circadian rhythms and know how they work? It's important for many features. One of them is health. We know it's more healthy to live according to your biological clock. So, for example, you have people who are the, the morning people, so the larks, let's say, and you have people who are more the, the evening types, so the owls. So basically people who like to get up in the early morning or who like to be active at night. And we know it has health consequences if you have to be, uh, if you're an evening person and you're forced to wake up super early every day, for example. It's not healthy. It has long-term health consequences. Um, mostly because sleep is usually shortened. If you like to stay up late at night and you have to get up super early the next morning, um, sleep is shortened and that has a lot of health consequences. And on top of that, it's just not, uh, it's not your prime time to function. 
so of course my article was about physical functioning but we also know that mental functioning has a circadian rhythm too and if you're forced to function mentally in the early morning when you're an evening type we know you perform worse compared to the evening and does that change in different times of life so i know they always talk about teenagers want to stay up later and old people want to get up earlier yes yes that's an excellent question indeed it changes with with life so usually as you said teenagers are, are pretty late chronotypes they like to be the evening chronotypes and so the owls and later in life people uh, change or shift again to earlier chronotypes but overall it can be that you're the same consistently the same chronotype throughout life too so how do circadian rhythms affect physical performance yeah, um, so, so that's what we studied, and we knew there was an effect of, so what we studied is not entirely new. Some other studies have already shown that circadian rhythms can affect performance. It's just new that it's also in Olympic athletes, and I'll explain a bit more about that later. But basically, since everything in our, in our body has a rhythm, a 24-hour rhythm, you can imagine that this also affects physical performance. So even our muscle clocks have rhythms with 24-hour, uh, with a 24-hour duration. And this means that there's always going to be a peak in performance and there's going to be a, a drop in performance too. And um, especially when you're performing at, at high levels, it's very important to have all these different clocks synchronized because, you know, the difference between finishing first or second is so small. It is important to, to take everything into account that can possibly affect this. So how do you get them synced to a particular time? Yeah, that's a tricky process, uh, but the main, the main way to get your body clock synced is, is basically using light. So let's say you're an evening type, as you are, but you like to become more of a morning type. The best way to do that is basically to tell your clock to shift your, your day frame. So you want to minimize light exposure in the evening and you want to maximize light exposure in the early morning. Um, basically tricking your body clock into thinking the day has shifted to an earlier time. So is that what the athletes do in their preparation for competing in a different time zone? Yes. So if you're talking about uh, it, basically it's the concept of jet lag. So if you travel to a new time zone, you always need a couple of days to adjust to this new time zone. And depending on which time zone you travel to or, or how many time, how, di how big the difference between the time zone that you're going to versus where you're coming from, it depends how long it takes. But that's, that's comparable to shifting your body clock. Um, so you need a couple of days to, to uh, re-entrain, so process what we call entrainment. So to get used to the new daylight schedule, daylight cycle, to, to get your body clock adjusted again. So I have always heard it's easier to go east than go west. Is that a myth or is that actually true? No, that's actually true. That's actually <laughs> true. It is. Yeah. There are some biological principles for that. Um, I, I'm not the expert on that, so I can't explain it exactly to you, but it's true. Yeah. So then maybe all these events in Asia actually are not so bad for the athletes if they're going east versus west. I mean, usually Olympic athletes go like, I don't know how much, but, but pretty far in advance to, to entrain to this new, because you don't want to be jet lag. Everybody knows jet lag is horrible. Um, it makes you function and perform worse. And um, so everybody usually uh, travels in time luckily. So in your study, you looked at swimming. Why did you choose swimming? Um, we chose swimming because it's a sport that's virtually 
so the, the environmental conditions are virtually constant. So if you look at other sports, such as, for example, cycling, um, you have a lot of other factors influencing performance, among which wind, weather conditions, but also the, the bicycle. Uh, whereas for swimming, the environmental conditions are always kind of constant. So the water temperature is always approximately the same. It's not depending on the weather. Um, there's minimal aiding of materials, so not a bike or anything. Um, so that makes swimming a really good sport to study. Because then you can isolate that one factor exactly. and, and take out all the other variables. Exactly, yes. Because you want to study um, a rhythm that's, that's pure. You don't want it to be confounded by all these other factors that you're not interested in. So, and then in your study, you looked at four different Olympics. So Rio, London, Beijing, and Athens. What did you find as you looked at the, the data and you took uh, just anonymize, uh, you anonymized the results that you found? So what, what did you find? So first of all, so something about swimming, for those who don't know it, usually it's comprised of a, a heat, a semifinal, and a final. So basically, um, athletes have to qualify for the finals via the semifinals and via the heats. And we only selected the athletes who made it to the finals just because it was uh, a part of our analysis step. So then what we did, we wanted to see how these swim times were in the, the heats, the semifinals and the finals compared to each other. And what we actually noticed is that, that athletes always swim a bit slower in the heats compared to the semifinals and compared to the finals. So apparently athletes are well aware of, of how much performance they have to deliver to be well enough to qualify for the uh, semifinals. And on top of that, we actually noticed that the difference between the semifinals and the heats was smallest in Beijing and biggest in Athens and London. And that kind of made us question like what was, go what was going on there. And we noticed that um, in Beijing, the heats were swum in the evening, whereas the semifinals and finals were swum in the morning versus London and Athens, where the heats were swum in the morning and the semifinals and finals were swum in the evening. So basically the pattern was reversed in Beijing versus London and Athens. And since this time difference between the heats and the semifinals was so much smaller in Beijing, we wondered if it could be a circadian effect. So that was really the start of our, our inquiry, let's say. So in Beijing, the local time, the, the finals were swum early in the day, whereas the heats and the semis, and then it was reversed. But that's all based local time, exactly. not a, a Greenwich mean. Okay. Yeah, it's all, all local time. Yeah. Okay. So the idea was that in Beijing, where they were doing the reverse of normal, mm -hmm. the difference between the heats and the semis and the finals was smaller. Mm -hmm. So the idea being that they were swimming slower, finals versus finals. Yeah, so basically the idea was because it was reversed, so the heats in Beijing took place in the evening at local time. So the idea was, since these athletes know so well how they perform, so the idea was that maybe, like despite knowing how much performance they have to deliver, they perform better in the evening in these heats, even though they don't necessarily have to, because the difference between semifinals and, and heats is so much smaller in Beijing compared to Athens and London. So just going back to the, the layout, when in Beijing were they, no, in the other <laughs> programs, were they doing the heats, the semis, and the finals all within a single day? Uh, or was that, did that vary? 
it varied a bit. So it's it's not all on the same day. Sometimes some of the, the events were on the same day, but sometimes there was a night in between or a day in between. So that's not really the determining factor of the of the analysis. It was really this this time of day difference. So the difference in scheduling. But swimmers are more used to swimming finals in the evenings. Yeah, that too. But also we know from other studies that your prime time to, to function physically is actually in the evening or the late afternoon. So we already had a guess that possibly having the heat in the, in the evening and the semifinals and finals in the morning might not be such a good idea for, for finish times in the end. Huh. That's surprising, though, that you would be physically peaking late afternoon because, you know, there's sort of that 3 p.m. slump idea. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that that's not true when we're talking about Olympic athletes. I mean, it is true, uh, like the, the slump of 3, 3 p.m. is usually what we call the, the post-lunch dip. But I think the physical performance peak is a bit later than that. And again, it depends on internal time too. So 5 p.m. external time when your peak performance is, it differs per individual, of course. If you're a morning type, it might be a bit before 5 p.m. If you're an evening type, it might be a bit after 5 p.m. But yeah, and why this this peaks at 5 p.m we don't exactly know our study didn't didn't involve that i mean we can speculate on it we know that that the rhythm in core body temperature so that the temperature that that your body is also follows a circadian path so a rhythm of approximately 24 hours and it also peaks in the late afternoon the beginning of the evening so that might be one of the factors that is involved in in physical performance but there are many others such as oxygen availability testosterone levels, um, yeah, you name it. It's kind of interesting when you look at swimming because so many swimmers train early in the morning and then maybe they have another training later on in the day, but that early morning training doesn't seem like it would be as beneficial maybe if uh, their body isn't peaked. Yeah, so that's something that we were a bit surprised about too, because some studies have shown that that training at a specific time of day can kind of counteract these time of day effects in itself. So we had expected that maybe we wouldn't find a circadian rhythm in these athletes since they train usually in the early morning. But interestingly enough, this this circadian effect is so big that it that it even counteracts or counteracts. It's it's bigger than the effect of training. So then would this study affect how you would recommend athletes train? Uh, that's a good question. I think I'd say it all depends on the scheduling of the of the game uh, of the match. So it depends on the timing of the match uh, when the when the athlete has to perform. So peak performance is boosted by training at the right time of day. Yeah, so so it depends. When you looked at the, the data, how did Rio factor into all of this? Good question. So Rio was interesting in itself because the, the semifinals and finals were from later in the evening, predominantly, so, so relatively late. So those were actually, it was interesting to see that the swimmers performed best when the semifinals and finals were held or when the, the races were held in the late afternoon. But if the, lace, the races were held at a later time of day, so in the early evening, for example, then race time would decrease again. So finish time would decrease again. So in that respect, Rio was really interesting. Kind of blown away by this, to be quite honest, when you, when you think about it. And yes. that's not something you can control either, necessarily. 
no, no, you can't control it. No. I'm surprised a little bit that this hasn't been studied more and early that, you know, we're kind of coming up with this now because they, especially for people like swimming and runners who it's every hundredth of a second and they want to get every little advantage that you would think that this would be kind of a natural place to look, you know, where can I mash all my times up? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what we thought too. Um, so, which is why we did the study. As I said, um, some people have, have looked into these effects in non-professional athletes. Um, there are a couple of studies in professional athletes more with respect to jet lag and effects of jet lag on, on training, uh, on performance, but yeah. Because I know we've spoken to different athletes who talk about matching when they train to where they're going to compete. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like something they need to, to do. Uh, you mean training at the right time of day? So for example, for figure skaters, if the finals are going to be at 7 p.m. at night, mm -hmm. they're performing their programs at 7 p.m. at night. So they their right. brains and bodies kind of match up. Or they're trying to live on, like for example, if you live in the United States, but you're trying to live on Tokyo time, mm -hmm. like Jill is trying to live on election day time. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are good strategies for sure. I, I just say that uh, athletes should take into account the race time too, to try and synchronize their body, like to match up their optimal peak performance to the race time. I think that would be a valuable addition to all the other measures that they already are taking into account. So in Tokyo, heats will be local time in the evening, and then the semifinals and finals will be mid-morning. Mm -hmm. So what kind of things, when, when you look at the, the previous games, what kind of things do you expect? Yeah, so, so with the heats, again, being in the evening and the semifinals and finals being in the late morning, I think we can expect something similar to Beijing, in which the, the difference between the heats and semifinals and finals will be smaller compared to the Olympic Games, games of uh, Athens and London, for example unless uh, athletes shift their body clock appropriately, of course. <laughs> so I know you studied individual swimmers, but have you thought about how this would also affect somebody in a team, like say a synchronized swimming team or a water polo team that has the same kind of controlled environment, but you're dealing with many people that you have to work with yeah. who could be on different body clocks? Right. Yeah. So that, that poses a whole new problem uh, because one individual is easy to shift, but if you have different individuals with different uh, chronotypes, you have to have different types of shifts to get them all synchronized to the right time to perform. So that's going to be pretty complex. So we haven't studied that yet. It might be one of the, one of the follow-up experiments. I think the follow-up study is to how to optimize our podcasting time. <laughs> <laughs> How can Chill and I be in sync <laughs> for our work here? You guys are well, out does... of sync? <laughs> well, it does bring a whole new meaning to synchronized swimming, to be quite honest. <laughs> Double synchronized, yes. Yikes. So what is next for you? What do you hope to do with this data or use it in, in future studies? Um, yeah, so first of all, I, I predominantly hope that, that athletes will take it into account and they use it to their advantage, especially with the upcoming games in, in Tokyo, uh, with the swim times being in the, in the morning. 
Additionally, so what is really important is, of course, we assess this effect in, in a very big cohort, so in, in more than 1,700 athletes. What is really important is to measure this on an individual level. So what we would love to do is, is to do these types of experiments to, let, to measure swim time in, actually people, in, in people at different times of day to assess the magnitude of this effect. Interesting. One question back to the, the study. Yeah, the main data you looked at was anonymous, but did you look at Michael Phelps in particular just because he swam all four Olympics? At some point in the study, I think we did do some analysis of people who participated in multiple Olympic Games, but I, I don't recall any specific results. Yeah, attached to that. Okay. And how did the shark suit effect in, in Beijing, that, that swimsuit issue, how did that affect how you looked at the data from that year? Yeah, that was a, a tricky situation. Um, and basically, it, it resulted in us um, having to do an additional analysis. So we had to, yeah, we had to change the data or we had to format the data in a certain kind of way to make sure that the sharks who didn't interfere with our analysis, because obviously people swim way faster in Beijing than in the other Olympic Games due to this shark suit. So what you can do is a method which is called normalization. And basically, um, uh, it's a type of mathematical um, analysis in which you make all, all the finish times circle around a certain value. So circle around, let's say, the value one. And therefore, it doesn't really matter if there are changes between Olympic Games, such as the shark suits in Beijing. Last for me, like, how long did it take you to do the study? I always want to know that stuff, like, because stuff takes longer than you think. Yeah, it takes a long time. Um, the first step is always the data collection, which takes a, a lot of time. Um, the the pre-processing, so you have to, to make sure that the data is in the right format. And then, of course, the actual analysis. And, and the more analysis you do, the more questions usually arise. So it's a lengthy process. I think it took, it took maybe a year, a year and a half or so, um, for sure, easily. Fascinating. Allison, do you have anything else? No, because now I'm like, oh my God, we, we have to do all this data analysis. <laughs> <laughs> well, my I can tell you this, my shape, changing my body clock is not fun. I will tell you that right now. It is, I am on a, I'm on five o'clock now and I'm supposed to be able to get up at 4.30. So next week is 4.30 and, and it's not fun at all. Wow. And it keeps getting darker. Yeah. Yeah, well, I would, I would, I have to learn to just get up and move and turn all the lights on yeah. because if I get up and move to the couch, then I take a nap <laughs> within an hour. Yeah. That's that defeats the purpose. So. Light exposure is going to be crucial, so I, I definitely advise a lot of light in the morning. And it's tricky now that it's more dark in the early morning. Uh, but also, don't forget to minimize light exposure in the evening because both things will do the trick. Okay. Thank you so much, Renska. You can follow Renska on social media. On Facebook, she's Renska.lock.1. That's the number one. Instagram, she's Renska.lock. On Twitter, she's at Lock Renska. And she is also on LinkedIn. Her name is spelled R-E-N-S-K-E-L-O-K. I have to say that that was really interesting and super helpful for me. I was going to ask you, we are past election day now. We spoke to her a little while ago. So how did it go with getting up in the middle of the night i was wide awake pretty much all day and that was good so and i worked the polls on election day here in the united states and ben has suggested maybe i should train myself to get up earlier because i had to 
wake up at 4.30 in the morning to be at the polls at 5.30 in the morning, and they opened at 6.30 in the morning. And they were open until about 7.30 at night, I believe. And then you're there until you're done. So uh, for us, it was about 9 o'clock. And that's a very long day. And it was a cloudy day. Oh, we had a sunny day. It was a beautiful, a beautiful, oh, beautiful okay. day. But, you know, we were in a, an elementary school gymnasium, so it's not like we got light. <laughs> so, but I, I will say doing what she suggested by turning on a lot of light in the morning when I got up, that helped. So I'd get up and go downstairs, turn on all the lights on the first floor. Did not matter if I could see them or not. They were all on. I'd sit in and do some stuff. And then in the evening, I'd insist that we'd be in the living room in the dark or, you know, all the lights had to be off. And then I had a little bedside light on and just everything off as much as possible. And it it did help. It just is so fascinating to me that they keep changing the times of when competitions are happening. Mm -hmm. You know, that's all having to do with television and United States audiences and getting people to watch. And it's just so hard for the athletes unnecessarily yeah it's really rough but i think in the in the case of the olympics it's always going to be hard for one batch of athletes no matter where you put them right because they're somebody's going to be traveling halfway around the world Mm -hmm. but it's interesting that that's something they can look out for and control and uh, learn to manage get your box light going right let's go visit our team Welcome to Shukflistan. Chelsea Memel has a new endorsement deal with Tumble Track, which is very cool for her. Tumble Track makes a lot of training products for uh, gymnastics, cheer, dance, and martial arts. And they make things like those pit pillows that you line up in the, the pits while uh, gymnasts train. They do a lot of air-based stuff, so it is easier on your joints and you don't have to pound yourself on the floor all the time. So, And she does love a good pit. she's been posting all these videos of doing everything into the pit and i'm like okay i'll go back to gymnastics if i can fall into that pit a few times our karateka tom scott was featured on the local abc news in his uh home area of north texas which is nice i did a little feature on how uh some olympic hopefuls were staying the course during the pandemic we'll have a link to that in the show notes and then what's up with Megan Duhamel? So Megan Duhamel and Wojciech Wolski have been competing at Battle of the Blades, have been competing in Battle of the Blades, and they were trying to train a double twist, and Megan's nose met Wojciech's shoulder, and <gasps> she broke her nose. Oh, no. <laughs> was this during the show? No, this was in training. Oh, okay, good. But it was not anything serious, and she posted it, and she said, uh, my nose is already crooked. It wasn't the first time this has happened. And she just went right back on the ice. But they're doing some crazy things like throw triples. Wow. Yeah. Which is impressive it- for somebody who's picking up pair skating for the first time. Right. And they're doing hand to hip lifts. Wow. Yeah. He's quite impressive. Excellent. Well, hopefully they will go far in the competition. And I keep posting at him, don't drop her. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently it is his great fear that he's going to drop her. So the fact that she broke her nose kind of hitting him was better for his confidence than if if he had dropped her. 
Well, that's good. Let's check in with what's going on with Tokyo 2020. So we're still on the whole who are we letting in and how are we letting them in elements. And the Kyoto News reported that uh, Japan is going to make special allowance for entrance of athletes before the Olympics. Uh, Foreign athletes and staff, no matter if they're in a country or region that Japan has a travel ban on because of the coronavirus, they have to submit proof of a negative test and take uh, precautionary measures while they enter the country. So the nice thing is that even if they're quarantined, they can participate in international tournaments or training camps. So when we were first talking about Tokyo, I remember they were talking about the welcome areas would be lined with flowers. Do you oh, remember right. that? Right. Now I'm thinking they're just going to be lined with Lysol. <laughs> you know, like at Disney World, how they have those water misters for the heat. I think it's going to spray out <laughs> antiviral. I would not be surprised if that happened. But they have been having events here and there. So they had a big four-country gymnastics tournament. It was a one-day, four-country gymnastics tournament, and they keep pointing to this and its success as, oh, we can run the Olympics, it's going to be fine. Well, I guess it was a test of bringing in a few athletes and seeing how well they did. Right. I mean, the the competition, it was great to watch competition and Mm -hmm. great to see gymnastics and and great to see how these athletes are doing, but... I don't, it's a very small scale test. Right. I mean, this right. is sort of like doing a, a coronavirus vaccine test on 10 people. <laughs> well, and then declaring you found the cure. Well, it's a start. Step in the right direction, that's for sure. We found out some more information about the streamlining of hospitality costs. Thank you, japantoday.com, for this gem. We got to put a link to this. And oh share yeah, this with we will. We will. This, this article is just on the nose. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So we've mentioned that uh, some of the cost-cutting measures that the organizing committee wants to make include cutting back on the hospitality for IOC measures, and then so Japan Today talked about some of those lavish parties. So apparently there are parties every night. And Yoshiro Mori, the president of the organizing committee, said it seemed like almost the same people showed up. So I guess he was referring to the parties in Rio because as the organizer of Tokyo, he would have been invited to Rio. Yes, yes. So he wanted to see what Rio was doing. And he complained that everybody was just sort of the same touring crowd in all these parties there was a lot of free alcoholic beverages. This article mentioned the alcoholic beverages a lot. So I guess there is a very heavy consumption. Maybe. It's a heavy cost, that's for sure. That's for sure. There was also concern over free sandwiches. <laughs> but they also he also noticed that the hosts had a VIP lounge at every venue for services to the members of the quote-unquote Olympic family, which is IOC members and international federations, among others. So you get your little lounge. And I wonder if the concern is that not all that many people use the lounge, although I bet the international federation people probably certainly use their lounge during the day, you know, during the event. If you have to be at the venue all day Mm -hmm. and you can get free lunch with a beer... 
I think you're going to go do that. Right. But, you know, why isn't the International Federation providing their own VIP lounge if they want? You know, you know what? Don't they don't they put up any of the money for that? Or do they just expect that they have to have this VIP lounge because it's the Olympics and somebody should pay for it and not us? And I'm really surprised that these aren't sponsored. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you would think, well, obviously there would be Coke and Coke products there. Exactly. I mean, at Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut, there's a, a Veuve Clicquot lounge. You would think that, you know, the Olympics could get a champagne sponsor. <laughs> you would think. You would think. Heineken House isn't happening this year. They need to name something. You got a point. You got a point. But it, it is interesting how much they noticed the lavish spreads and an opportunity to scale back and maybe uh, get back to something that's a little bit more reasonable. The organizing committee was also going to equip about 490 hotel rooms with cable TV that required a special network and device. But instead, they're going to replace them with an Internet streaming service. So you have to wonder, like, oh, well, we need to have cable. Like, is this an outdated part of the contract? You know, they signed this True. contract, like, eight or nine years ago now, right? And the technology is so different. Mm-hmm. And though I'm kind of thinking, why wouldn't a hotel room have cable TV? Is that just not a I, thing I, in Tokyo? Maybe, maybe. I can't imagine. But why would they have to go into a hotel? I wonder. I, I mean, I wonder if something's lost in translation here because I wonder, like, do they have to say, hey, Hilton, we're coming in to put cable in for you because our, our people need it? That just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, maybe if it's a specialized network, if yeah, it's something that's... specific that it's not like HBO. Right, or maybe <laughs> maybe it taps into the OBS, the uh, Olympic Broadcast System, and uh, they can watch it all the time. I don't know, but it didn't it didn't quite make sense. But by golly, not having to do that anymore is probably good. And you know, even hotel rooms. What if they? What about the Airbnbs? Oh God. <laughs> Are you getting a tatami mat in Yoshi's flat? <laughs> Is that where we're putting Thomas Bach this year? But that was an interesting news. And the, just the way they wrote this article, referencing things like aristocratic behavior. I'm like, well, there are many aristocrats in royalty. <laughs> they're used to their free beer. That's right. They're going to have to learn a little austerity for, for some games. The torches have gone on tour. As we mentioned before, they're traveling to a whole bunch of prefectures so that more people can experience the flame. And Mainichi Japan has a story that says the oldest person in the world is confirmed to be one of the torchbearers for the relay. She is uh, Kane Tanaka, and she is 117 years old. Wow. Pretty wow. impressive. Wow. And she is. She sounded really gung ho. She's like, "I'm going to be there." She. They have a picture of her with her coke can in her hand. <laughs> she's training. Yes, the day she's planned, scheduled to be part of the torch relay, she will be 118 years old, 129 days. I'm sorry. They should have her going first. <laughs> just in I, case. Just in case. I don't mean to be negative, but. She's 117. Probably doing okay. They said her uh, nursing home says her physical condition remains good. Wow. And she's telling people she wants to go to America. Why? Well, I, maybe they... she's always wanted to visit, but doesn't oh, understand okay. what, 
what it's like here with the coronavirus. I'm like, of all the places she could want to go, this is not the time to come to the United States. Never say never. That's that's. We'll save you some coke. That's right. Come over and tape the show with us. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how many Olympics this woman has seen? The story mentioned she was 61 when the Olympics were held, last held in Tokyo in 1964. Wow. So Tokyo 2020 in 2021 will be her 50th Olympics when you combine summer and winter. All right, let's check in with the IOC. Inside the Games has reported that the IOC has warned sports not to join the Global Esports Federation because they don't plan to recognize any organization as the world governing body for esports. That's because esports is not really a sport. Probably, yeah. I mean, I get yeah. that they train and they have to be in good shape to do it, but it's not the same thing. And I wonder if this is the IOC playing its hand and saying yeah we looked at this and we we uh, indulged you for a while to talk about esports because that's what you like but uh it's not a sport yeah so earlier today the uh, executive board met and so that meant it was time for a little media call with t-buck i have to say i was a little concerned with how t-buck looked he looked like he had lost a lot of weight you think so I, I was concerned. Hmm. He looked a little drawn. He looked very thin. He did look thin. I will give you that. So he did look thin. And they were, it was interesting because in Olympic House, nor it's been business as usual and they don't have that many people there. But when uh, T-Bank wasn't speaking or James McLeod wasn't speaking and James is the director of the NOCs and Olympic Solidarity and he was there as part of the call. When they weren't speaking, they wore masks. Right. And nobody was close to them because they gave us the wide shot. They were far apart from each other, but they still put their masks on. So I guess I don't know how the numbers are in Switzerland, but I guess they're not good. But this has got to be, I mean, to be fair, Tipak is under unprecedented stress. Yes. So I would say, I and a lot of with... things keep coming at him too. I mean, a lot of issues that they're dealing with. So we'll see. But, you know, the most important element of the call to me was whether or not he was going to wave goodbye. And he did. He did. He did. But it was so tentative. He was like, hey, I'm just like. like he didn't want to get up. in trouble with the young people at right? the IOC. Right? <laughs> but it was lovely, T-Bach. I appreciated your wave. But in between those two things of us noticing that he was thin and him waving, there was actually some substance to this call. Right. Um, well, okay. So I want to one little comment on the staffers who said waving was old fashioned. You know what they really need to get on him? He's got to stop saying it was a perfect 10 about that gymnastics meet in Japan. He, he that also, was his line. He also kept talking about his toolbox. Oh. So he kept talking about his COVID-19 toolbox. Chibok, you needed to put the toolbox away. <laughs> and they've got the toolbox keeps getting bigger and bigger. The more, the more calls we are on, the toolbox just gets enormous. They have all these things in the toolbox. And can we say that gymnastics doesn't even use a 10-point scale anymore? So yes, that was, 10. yes, that's that's why I was like, he keeps using this. It was a perfect 10. He doesn't even know the scoring system has changed. Or maybe he does, but, you know, a perfect 10, everybody knows. Except for maybe a whole generation of gymnasts 
who have not worked on that scale before. So, but college gymnasts still do. So we're just yeah, gonna go with that. Yeah, but not everybody's a college gymnast either. I don't know what sure. they do for the equivalent in uh, Europe and Asia and Australia, and New Zealand. So, you know, communication staffers, you can get on them for that. Let them wave. Just give them some better references. But yes, uh, COVID nineteen was a big discussion except for there was nothing conclusive that they talked about it's just like japan is doing more thing more events with more fans and they're learning as they go and they just can't make any calls yet except for the fact that the games are going to happen no matter how many journalists ask the the games are going to happen they're going to happen whether or not they're going to happen with every noc we don't know whether or not they'll happen with every athlete we don't know some might decide to stay home they not, may not happen with fans or a lot of fans, but they're going to happen. They'll make it work. One of the interesting things that he uh, that T-Box had an answer to a question was that everything depends on everything. Mm-hmm. It was a phrase he used, and he and it's true because each moving part you can't pull any of these strings without the entire thing unraveling. So you can't ask about fans without asking about a vaccine, without asking about venues without so everything does depend on everything and i could see his frustration in answering the question that way to just say do you understand there is still a pandemic right and we are trying to make this up as we go along as best we can right and things keep changing from day to day and week to week so you can't say anything definitive right now because in march things may be completely different right but that gymnastics competition was a perfect 10. <laughs> he did. They, uh, somebody did ask about the international federations who still had qualifying events. And he did sympathize with that because there are a lot of issues coming out with international federations being able to schedule and pull off events where they can be Olympic qualifiers and figuring out how are we going to qualify athletes, especially in things like wrestling where uh, there's world wrestling championships has just been canceled partially because many of the top countries pulled out and uh, that's tough i i also feel for the international federations who have to figure out what to do and how to make it work it sounds like the ioc is trying to be as flexible as possible with qualifications yes um, in working with the international federations to just figure out how we're going to make this fair and fair as possible because you know right uh they also talked about the uh olympic solidarity budget which is why james mcleod was on the call and james talked about the fact that the ioc is going to give more money to the nocs and the athletes which is interesting so they increased the olympic solidarity uh, budget by 16%. So it's now $590 million US. And that will help them increase the direct support to the athletes by 25% and also increase the support to the National Olympic Committees by 25%. So that's and helpful. They need, it. they need it. And I did wonder like, wow, you got to, you could increase it that much. How much money do you have sitting around? Fair point. Where is this money coming from? Or are they borrowing it from future years? Good with the, question. With, with the idea that the 20 money didn't get spent in the same way, so they have future year money. I 
yeah, but all of a sudden we can just pull a few million out. Yeah. One of the other journalists asks about uh, an update on Rule 50, which was, that was a really good question. And uh, T-Box said that they have done a number of qualitative assessments and consultations by some NOCs and athlete commissions. And the, the IOC is basically staying out and letting the athletes commission do their thing. And so far, he said there's a majority of athletes who believe that the field of play and ceremony should be protected, but they want to look for new and creative ways to celebrate Olympic values and probably protest. I'm right, guessing celebrate Olympic is... values is code for it's okay to protest here. Right, because it's that's what this whole question is about. Mm -hmm. And uh, he mentioned that they're going to do some quantitative research starting shortly. And then once they've got that all complete, they'll go back to the IOC executive board to discuss this further. So the T-Box said, yeah, they're waiting for the proposals from the Athletes Commission to see what they'll do about it. I am starting to feel like Tokyo 2020 is going to be a real watershed on so many issues. Yeah, it, it could be a very pivotal moment in the history of the Olympics. It feels that way, you know, between having to make the changes because of COVID, having to make budget changes, having to make these Rule 50 changes. When we were getting ready for Tokyo 2020 the first time, it didn't feel like this. Mm -mm, of course not. And now it feels bigger. Yeah, yeah, there's more. And there's just so much more has happened in the rest of the world that ends up affecting the games in some way. Or the games can be a platform for so much. In a terrifying and exciting way. Very true. He did talk a little bit about weightlifting. Yes. My bugaboo. Yes. And I thought he handled it very well. He said, they'll be there for 2020. After that, they got to clean up their act. Yeah, because he said they've been doing some stuff okay, especially with testing and anti-doping. But 2020 is going to be the big test because if they don't have a clean games, I, yeah. I mean, he basically said it. He said, you know, we will look at what happens to the podiums. You know, if we keep wiping out entire podiums like we've done for the past, you know, probably since Beijing, mm -hmm. this is not what we want in the Olympics. Yeah. So that will be interesting. I don't know with the direction that the IWF leadership has gone because they oust, pretty much ousted their interim president who was trying to make change. Yeah, they ousted anybody who told them they couldn't run it like their own little playground. Yeah, so it it could be that if they if they don't get that message, they'll get a harsher message. Tebok will come with his little sword and he will cut them out of the games. That might be a sight to see. And God. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's losing weight. He's in training again. <laughs> well, we can only hope. Somebody make that man some Wiener schnitzel. Fatten him up. <laughs> I don't want him getting sick. I'm concerned. Well, I think he'll be okay. I don't know. He's heading over to Tokyo next week too. And uh and he said, yeah, I'm going we're, we're taking very we're taking a lot of precautions. Go I've chartered a flight. So, he's getting a nice plane ride there and he'll 
follow whatever restrictions they have on him and and whatever the hosts want to do with him health wise. But uh, and he said the entire staff that's going is bubbling together. Mm-hmm. They're basically all in quarantine together right now. So that little charter flight, they'll just be traveling as a little IOC pod. Gosh, wouldn't that be a great reality show? (laughs) (laughs) I'm imagining it like, remember that cartoon, The Jetsons? Yeah. How they had their little space car. Oh, yeah, yeah. And each person (laughs) would just like drop out. (laughs) I'm Topaz Bach. And he's driving (laughs) a little space car. And out drops Kit McConnell and James (laughs) McLeod. And John Coates takes the wallet away. <laughs> oh no, John Coates is Rosie, the the robot housekeeper, oh. who like yells at people and smacks <laughs> them with a broom. Oh, what a sight that would be! That would be great. I just imagine John Coates with the bow in his hair now. <laughs> Oh, oh, somebody oh. make that meme for me, please. Put John Coates' face on Rosie the robot. <laughs> we should wrap it up so that uh, people can get started on that meme for you. Uh, if you have tried to reset your biological clock, let us know how that worked for you. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT or Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week is Movie Club. So film buff Fran will be here to talk about Gold, which is about India's 1948 hockey team. And as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. to make this up as we go along as best we can.